I'd like you to, to look at uh, John 3, uh, 13 to 18. And I want us just to focus on verse 16, which is a famous verse, of course. But let me read uh, 13 uh, to 18. John 3, 13 to 18. And Jesus is speaking. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So I trust you've been been having a good holiday break, and uh, a break from work, and uh, that your family relationships are going okay. And uh, especially, uh, I trust that you, you're able to take time to meditate on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world, the Son of God. And as Christians, uh, if nothing else, we should be doing that at this season. Meditating on the coming of Jesus into the world. This month we've been thinking about this question, why did Jesus come? Uh, And I want us to to answer that question today by considering the reason given uh, in verse 16, where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever, uh, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It is uh, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's... uh, uh, And it's not usually one that comes up at this time of the year, I have to admit. But it is a reason why Jesus came. And it's very important we get to the reasons why Jesus came. Um, Whoever believes in him should have eternal life. That's why Jesus came. That people who believe in him should have eternal life. That ordinary people from all walks of life, from all backgrounds, from all identities, no matter what your racial or cultural identity is, all people should come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that they may receive eternal life. And I simply want to look at this question of eternal life with you uh, today because, of course, this, this phrase, eternal life, uh, zoe ionios in the Greek, Uh, This phrase, eternal life, is found all over the New Testament. But by far the most uh, common place to find that phrase is in the book of John. It's referred to 17 times that I counted. And uh, that's 40% of all the New Testament references. And twice as many as all the other Gospels uh, put together. 17 times he talks about eternal life. And John, it seems, has a particular interest in his readers knowing about eternal life. How do you get eternal life? How do you find this eternal life? That's a very important question. And I want to begin just by talking about, first of all, the origin 
of eternal life. Where does eternal life come from? Where do we get eternal life? And the answer, of course, is, is found in this verse. If you trace it back, it comes from God. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. And just like eternal life, John speaks a great deal about love. The love of God. And not just about his love uh, for us and and ours for him and for each other. But he speaks a great deal about the love within uh, the, the Godhead between father and son together. John 14, 20, 31. I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus loved his Father. Or John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And so you have this wonderful picture of the Father and the Son loving each other from eternity. And of course the Holy Spirit is in there as well. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You get a window as you go into the later chapters of John into the glories of the Trinity. This wonderful God that Father and Son love one another and the Holy Spirit too. God is love. That's why we can say that God is love because God is within the being of God. Is that those loving relationships between the persons? You can't say that of any other God, of any other religion. They can try, but it's not really true. God is love. It's not, and it's not just a characteristic that he has. It is what he is. God is love. He's always been love. Even before the creation of the universe. Because it is his nature and is therefore not generated by anything outside of himself. It's actually from within himself. Uh, How we love is quite different, isn't it? Uh, We we attach our love to things we like. We see something we like and we think, yeah, I love that. And our love doesn't naturally come from us. It, It depends on something outside of us. When we fall in love with someone... It's because of what we see and what we hear and how we interact with them. Our love is dependent on things that are outside of ourselves, but not God. God's love is from within himself. And it's out of that love flows a voluntary, practical love towards all that he's created. It's important we get this idea that this love doesn't come about because God creates something and then he sees it as lovable. It actually comes from his love in the first place. He is love. He is not captivated by love. We, We talk about ourselves being captivated by love and in love. But God is not captivated by love. He's not captivated by anything. He loves because he is love. Now, theologians of the past, reformed theologians of the past, have long realized that the Bible makes distinctions within God's love. The different 
kinds of love or how that love expresses itself in different ways. Uh, the first is uh, there's three, three ways. Let me just mention three ways. First of all, there's love for all that he has created. Love for all that he has created. Uh, there is a particular delight that God has, has in his creation. He loves and out of his love he creates. And when he made it, it was good. And when he's, he made man as the pinnacle of that creation, it was very good. And so, as Isaiah 145 says, and the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. God loves all that he has made. Here's the second aspect of God's love. There is love for all human beings, no matter whether they are God's people or not. This is reflected in how God deals with all people. It's a uh, a kind of benevolent love to, to all human beings. Uh, Matthew 5.45, Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, God, he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. All the good things of the created order come to the good and evil uh, like, uh, alike. God loves all human beings in one sense. That's the second way. But the third way, and this is really important too, there's a particular love for the elect, for God's chosen people, for those upon whom he has set his saving grace and love which he has determined before the foundation of the earth. A particular love for his people. Now, which, which kind of love is meant here in John 3.16? For God so loved the world. Uh, I don't think you can get away from, I know people have taken different views on this, but I don't think you can get away from the idea that John is speaking about the whole of mankind here. For God so loved the world. Here's what J.C. Ryle says uh, about this term, world. The love here spoken of is not that special love with which the Father regards his own elect, but that mighty pity and compassion with which he regards the whole race of mankind. That's the kind of love that's been spoken of here. And just think about that. Think about all the, the state of mankind. Think about all the sin that mankind is in. Think about all the evil and rebellion that man perpetrates against God. And yet God has his mighty pity and compassion upon such sinners. That he thinks about that whole humanity. And he says, I love this world. And to rub the point in, he says here, and God so loved the world. He so loved the world. See, eternal life now is offered to a fallen world out of his great love for all mankind. So where does it come from? It comes from the love of God. Here's a second question. What is eternal life? What does he mean by eternal life? I remember as a, when I was a new student... And uh, I'd be in my late teens, and uh, I'd left home, moved up to the big city. It was all new and exciting. 
looking after my own uh, affairs, including my food, which I had no clue about. But uh, I remember, it was all very exciting and everything. But I do remember in that first year at university, becoming very aware of the brevity of life. Life was going to come to an end. Uh, it was a very strange thing. I can't, I can't account for it. It just happened. It's like I was on my own, away from my family, and suddenly began to think about, what is my li- where's my life going? And realizing it's going to come to an end. And I remember it, it became very kind of uh, immediate for me. I remember sitting in the library. I was studying. I was doing mathematics or something. And I was studying, and I looked up at the clock, and I noted the time. And then, it happened to be ten minutes later, I looked up at the clock again, and ten minutes had gone past. And there was suddenly that feeling of panic. Where did that ten minutes go? How could I lose ten minutes of my life like that? And isn't life like that? You kind of go through life, and you think, where did all the time go? Some of you are the upper end of the age range, you're thinking, where did all that time go? The brevity of life. It's going to come soon. Three score and ten, if you're lucky. Maybe 80. And life comes to an end. Now that sounds a bit daft. You may think I'm a miserable so-and-so <laughs> as a student. No, I was quite a happy student, actually. But I think people think about the shortness of their lives all the time. I think people try and hide from it, and it keeps popping its head in, uh, into our minds and our thoughts. But I remember as a student thinking, is, is there life beyond my death? Is there such a thing as eternal life? Is there life forever after my limited time on this earth? And then the next question is, is there a God? What about God? Is there a God? How do I deal with God when I come face to face with him? Does God exist? What's he like? Does he control eternal life? Will he let me have it? And so I began to investigate the Bible with some other Christians. That's how I became a Christian. And uh, I'm glad to tell you that there are answers to those questions in the Bible. And this verse holds out this answer. It holds out the truth that there is life to be had from God. And it does indeed go beyond our deaths to eternal life. But I need to say to you, it's more than simply that there is a life that lasts a very long time. (laughs) John does speak also about a quality of life. So, for example, in John 17, verse 3, where Jesus is praying to his Father in heaven, and he says, this is eternal life. He says to his Father, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is what is the essence of eternal life, that you enter into fellowship with God and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see what's new here? You cannot separate eternal life from knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. There's no other way to have eternal life. Now, I think we all 
I think we all understand the significance of this. We understand that life on this earth gains value and significance as we have friends and family that we can relate to. And, and those relationships give us a sense of meaning and purpose. How much more so with God and his son Jesus Christ. So eternal life is not simply about the length of life. It's about who you know as it stretches out before you. Eternal life is for enjoyment of God forever. And as we shall see, it's a life not just for the future, but it's a life that actually can begin here and now as we come to know him. But we'll say more about that in a moment. Third question. How does God give this eternal life? So it comes from God's love. Uh, it's life with God. How does God give that life now? Third question. The benevolent love of God towards the world is necessary, of course, but it's not sufficient. It's not enough just to know that God loves us. You'll, you'll hear lots of messages at this season of the year about how God loves us, how loving he is. And it never really goes further than that. But it's not sufficient. For the simple reason that our sin has caused a barrier between us and God. And no matter how much God loves us, that barrier is still there. How is he going to deal with the barrier between us and God? For that, he has had to give his one and only son. That word give is pregnant with meaning. He has to give his one and only son. John is talking about the second person of the Trinity from within this environment of Trinitarian love that the Son of God comes and he takes upon himself a human nature. He is begotten from before eternity, but he's born into history. He is the Father's treasure in heaven that he gives And we see what it means for the Son to be given. If you look, uh, we see actually in verses 17 and 15 that we read. In verse 17 we see that he was sent, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his Son into the world. In other words, he came from the environments of heaven and willingly and at the behest of his Father and became flesh amongst us. He left the glory of heaven to come into the misery of this world to live amongst us who rejected him and turned against him. And then as you look back to verse 15, you see what he came to, came to do. He came actually to be lifted up. As Moses lifted the serpents in the wilderness, from the book of Numbers as a story, you must, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The idea of him being lifted up is lifted up on the cross. He has to be exalted in that horrible way that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And so, in that way, the Son of God has been given for our salvation. There's a notion of significance in that word given. And sometimes we can, we can gloss over this and say something superficial about this. So, well, God is like that. He does things like that. You ever said that? 
It's kind of like that. But that can only come from someone who doesn't really know the human relationships and certainly doesn't know their Bible. Uh, let me take you back to the Old Testament. Uh, have you ever read Genesis 22? I hope you have. <laughs> uh, but remember what's in Genesis 22? Uh, Abraham takes his only son, his beloved son, Isaac, and he is told by God to take him up to the mountain and sacrifice him. And it's almost like, but you promised the son, and now he's here, and you want me to sacrifice him? What, what are you talking about? And, and just at, But Abraham is obedient, and just at the point where he is about to sink the knife into his son, the angel of the Lord cries out, Stop! And God intervenes. And it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible story, isn't it? You read it and you think, what a terrible story to put in the Bible. And sometimes people will say, what a terrible book the Bible is. It's full of these terrible things. And they don't want a God that's like that. But there's a good reason why that that story of Genesis 22 is there. Because that's the very thing that God did with his son. Except there was nobody greater than God to say stop. He gave his son. And his son died. On the cross. And that's what the Lord, I think, was teaching Abraham. That there needed to be a death and a resurrection. You read that in Hebrews chapter 11. He believed in the resurrection. So that's why he's willing to put the knife in his only son. But the lesson here is that God would give his only son. And he would suffer and die. A sacrificial offering for sin. And that is why Jesus came into the world. As a baby in a manger, born of a virgin. In order that he would die. That he could become the adequate and spotless once for all for all time, sacrificial sin for offering. And this is the basis upon which eternal life can be offered to men and women of the world. So next question, fourth question. How can someone receive this eternal life? That was 2,000 years ago. How can somebody today receive eternal life? Well, it's very simple. Verse 16 again. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God has done the groundwork. He has done everything necessary by giving his son. He has laid the foundations. There's just one more thing that needs to happen. The person needs to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for him or her to receive eternal life. And we mustn't be complacent about this. There are some people around who think that, well, if I just have a you know, a, posit- a generally positive disposition towards God, then isn't that, isn't that belief? Isn't that enough? I've got, or, or they say something like, yeah, I've got nothing against Jesus. I'll have eternal life. And they're kind of a little bit complacent about it. Let me describe to you what this trusting in Jesus is like. John describes this world into which Jesus has come as a world that has turned its back in rebellion against God. And I'm afraid if you're not a Christian today, that's you. You have turned your back in rebellion against God. 
And so this necessity to believe in Jesus can never simply be a positive disposition towards Jesus. It has to be accompanied by a laying down of weapons against Jesus and against God. It means a laying down of resistance against him. That kind of resistance that says, I'm not going to listen to Jesus. I'm not going to bother. Yeah, I'll have eternal life that's having it, but I'm not going to pay any attention to Jesus. A resistance that will not love Jesus. A resistance that will do nothing to serve Jesus. It's a laying down of weapons, you see, and a laying down of the resistance. So this call is here. To come to Jesus, lay down your weapons, come to Jesus, get rid of all resistance, and believe in him and entrust yourself into his safe arms. You see, in Jesus, John says, in him was life. John 1 verse 4. So put down your weapons of resistance. Come to Jesus and receive from him. And maybe you should... You can, the way you can do that, how do you do that? You express that in a prayer. Say a prayer. Don't say it here, but you know, as you go home today, if you need to, say a prayer. Confess your sins. Ask forgiveness. Ask him to fill you with his life. Do that. Don't hold back. Don't put it off. Here's the last question. and We'll finish with this. Uh, what will this life, if you've received this life, what will it mean for us now? And... Uh, I think I've got, yeah, I've got three things. Very, very quick. <laughs> three things. What does it mean for us now to have that life today? What does it mean? First of all, it's something that we've come across before in this little series we've been doing it throughout December. Uh, that the gift of living water, it's when Jesus was meeting with the woman at the well, and she, he speaks about this gift of living water. And he says, this water will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Something happens to you when you become a Christian. When you entrust yourself to Jesus, something happens within you that's where a spring begins to well up within you. Before, you see, you had a thirst, you had a desire perhaps. Uh, You had something, and and all people have this, a desire, a thirst for something more. They believe that there's got to be something more than this life. But they don't know what it is. And then they come to Jesus, and then they discover the, uh, the well of eternal life from Jesus. And it wells up within them. And it's, now they suddenly find that they're satisfied with Jesus. That he's the, he's the river of life. He is the, the spring of eternal life. He is the bread of life, as we'll think about later. And uh, it's joyful. You know, you, you, you're changed by it. So something happens to you. And it's not something you work up in yourself. God does something in you. Here's the second thing that happens. You now have a hunger for Christ. You have a hunger for him. Whatever else you do in your life, you're going to have Christ. You've got to have more of him. Uh, John 6, 54. Whoever feeds in my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Whoever has eternal life, feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. In other words, the external evidence that somebody truly has eternal life is that they start feeding on Christ. He 
You can't get enough of him. You want fellowship with him. You want fellowship with him personally and devotionally. You want to gather for worship. You want to sing his praises. You want to sit under the ministry of the word. And it's not wrong to say that you are obsessed with Jesus. You become obsessed with him. You're like teenagers following a football team. You can't get enough (laughs) of your team. You can't get enough of Jesus Christ. This is what eternal life does to you. It changes you. And it upends all your priorities. It changes everything about you. And it reshapes you. Thirdly, last one. You get a new attitude to the world you live in. John 12, 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It creates a kind of hatred of this life. You want to be free of this life. And the sin and all the failure. And you want that eternal life. You want the fullness of it. Because it's already begun in you. But it's not come to consummation yet. You're still to be resurrected in your body. But you have an inner spiritual life. And you begin to hate this world. You live lightly to this world. You don't care so much about the things you have. Because you're thinking about heaven. And if you hold to this life closely, clinging to it and trying to find your satisfaction in it, and live in the fear that one day you're going, to, you're going to lose it, and we all shall lose it, then you indeed will lose it. But if you can just let go of it and prioritize Jesus Christ during your days on this earth, then that life is a life that you will never lose. That's what eternal life does to us. It changes us completely. This is why Jesus came. So that you and I could receive eternal life and not perish. And all that is required of you and me is that we believe in him and entrust our lives into his hands. Have you put your faith in him this morning? Have you begun to enjoy this eternal life now? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great salvation and the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Again, we pray that you'd help us to truly believe in him, to see him as our all in all, our ultimate satisfaction, to see that eternal life is about knowing God and who you are and walking in fellowship with you. We pray give us a hunger for that kind of life. May we all come to saving faith in Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen.